You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Every year between Christmas and New Year, our family goes on a ski trip. Now this year, Charity and the in-laws stayed back at the cottage while I went with the boys out on the slopes. Now at this stage, they are all, well, significantly better than I am at skiing, so it is not unusual for them to go tearing down some expert slope and for me to take the long way around on something that's a little bit easier and a little bit more mellow. But even at my slower pace on my easier trail, I couldn't help but notice that there were people, many people it seemed, who were out there that were experts. I saw kids zipping out in and out of forested glades. I saw packs of teenagers flying off of ramps. I even saw some much, much older folks cutting tight lines down the slope in their 1980s snowsuits. And I asked myself for maybe the hundredth time since I've been skiing, am I actually getting any better at this? Like, do I look like them on the slopes? Or do I just look like some pigeon-toed newbie who's just trying to survive? And so maybe I was looking for a little bit of reassurance or something when I was on the lifts with one of my boys. I elbowed him and I pointed to a young girl uh, who was attempting to ski and she had her arms kind of out wide with her, her, her poles out there and her, her feet were all kind of pizza, is what they call it, where she's snow plowing fiercely, trying not to crash. She looks a little bit like this image that we have. And I saw her and, and, and I nudged my son and I said, now that right there is what I look like on the slopes. And he said, well, well where? And I said, well, over there, do you see that 10 or 11 year old in pink? That's what I look like on these hills. And he looked to where I'd pointed and then he said, no, that, that's not what you look like, dad. And hopefully I said, oh, it's not. And he goes, no, she looks young. Well, that dear son of mine is still out on the mountain somewhere, but in some ways he's not exactly wrong. I am certainly older than when I began skiing, which was only 10 years ago. And yet, although I've been skiing for 10 years, I, I still haven't really gotten to the place where I think I am probably that much better than that girl that we saw on the hill. Uh, I was, you know, initially I had to learn and I got better quickly, but then I kind of went into this plateau. I'm pretty much the same skier for the last eight or nine years. And I thought about why that might be, and a few things came to mind. Well, for starters, I only ski once or twice a year. In fact, from basically mid-March through the first snow of the following fall, I don't even think about skiing. I don't do skiing exercises or stretches or read articles. I don't go and, and hire a ski coach to help me learn how to get better at what I'm doing. I give no thought to it whatsoever. I just show up that once or twice a year and I hope to ski successfully. There's a famous quote that says, successful people do consistently what others do occasionally. Successful people do certain things consistently 
that other people just sort of do on occasion. And I think we know that this is true in many arena of our lives. If we want to be successful at something, there are practices, efforts, habits, that we have to acquire and learn and to do consistently in order to become the type of people that we want to be. This is certainly true with financial success. If I want to be rich or maybe just have more than I currently do, I need to set up a budget and then be consistent about it. Understand what I'm earning, what I'm earning and what I'm giving and what I'm able to save and how to invest. If I want physical fitness, I need to be consistent about exercise and hydration and in my diet and all of that. If I want relational success, there are things that I can do consistently that will lead to being healthier and better in those arenas. My consistent practices shape whether or not I grow in some area of life and whether or not I am successful. Simply showing up once a year and expecting to be a better skier than last year, not just an older skier, is foolishness. Showing up to the gym one time and expecting to have shredded abs is foolishness. Having a budget for like a week and then scrapping it is foolishness if what we want is to change and to get better because successful people do consistently what others do occasionally. Well, if we believe that this is true in many arenas of life, do we also think that this is true when it comes to being a person of faith? Do spiritually successful people do consistently what others only do occasionally? No, no I, I know what you're thinking. Spiritually successful, that's a, that's a weird phrase, and it is. A everyone is spiritual. Uh, everything is in some sense is spiritual. So, so maybe that phrase doesn't work exactly, but maybe try this. In order to grow in faith and become more consistently aware of God's presence, becoming more of the person that God has made us to be, are there certain things that we should be doing consistently rather than just occasionally? Like, are there practices, actions, even habits that if we incorporated those things into our lives, that those things would actually make a real difference? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. There are certain things certain habits that we can have that will help us grow in this arena of our faith. Jesus himself had certain patterns, rhythms, habits, practices that he followed. There's even a book right now called The Jesus Habits that's out there. I don't know if it's any good. I'm not endorsing it. But it, he, he had certain things that he would do all the time. And when he said to his initial followers, hey, follow me, they knew they were being invited to, to come into a relationship with Jesus where they would literally watch him, walk with him, be around him, and then try to model their lives to be like his so that they could become kind of apprentices of Jesus. Uh, Christ people, little Jesus's Christians. That's what they were being invited into when he said that. Now, have you ever seen... Uh, a child who is mimicking their parents, like a little boy mimicking his father. Recently, there was a really cute video of this little boy and his father watching a football game. And, and the boy has sort of an initial reaction. And then when he sees his father's reaction, he changes. I think we have that clip for you here.
isn't that so cute to see how this boy, he kind of reacts one way, but then he looks and he sees his father and he, he imitates that. He, he goes, oh, this is, this is the way my father acts, so that's the way I'm going to act. Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. When we are going to be, if we're going to be Jesus followers, we are invited to watch Jesus and to learn to become more like him down to his very habits. For the next five weeks or so, we will be in this series of talks that we're calling Habits of Grace. After that, we'll dive back into 1 Corinthians and we'll knock that book out. But we want to really look at what are these small things that can make a massive difference in our lives. A couple weeks ago, I was joking that as we take stock of the year prior, there are very few of us that are probably thinking, nailed it, like I did last year just about perfectly. I mean, what is it that compels people to make New Year's resolutions, right? Or even those that don't make New Year's resolutions, we all recognize that there are arenas in our lives where we need to improve, things that we need to do differently, ways in which we ought to be changing, especially if we want to be better. If we want to zip through the trees and soar over the jumps and cut tight lines throughout our year. So where should we start? How can we get rolling in a way that will help us navigate all of the challenges and opportunities that can arise this year? How can I, as a pastor, be helpful to our people to help them really, really grow in this arena? And that's why we're talking about these habits of grace. Because we need to be rooted in our faith when big stuff comes along, but it is often these little tiny habits that make a huge difference. About 20 years ago at Duke University, a paper was published that said 40% of our lives are made up of these little things that we call habits. Like so much of our day-to-day lives are just these sort of routine structured habits, these things that we do automatically without really even thinking about it. And so if we could shift some of those habits, what a difference that would make. Now, the uh, father, the so-called father of American psychology, his name is uh, William James, died in 1910. I don't love a lot of things that he said. In fact, I read one of his books in college. Every chapter I finished, I would just throw the book against the wall. It was just, it was rough. But he said one thing that I really, really liked in a set of letters to his wife, and it was this. He said, I am done with great things and big things, great institutions and big successes, and I am for those tiny, invisible, molecular, moral forces that work from individual to individual, creeping through the crannies of the world like so many rootlets or like the capillary oozing of water, yet which, if you give them time, will rend the hardest monuments of man's pride. I like that. So today, we begin to focus on the little things, some some little things that could have incredibly profound impacts on our lives. And as we dive into the text for the day, I want to ask us three questions whose answers will in some ways determine our capacity for real change. Whether or not we will just slide through this year, another year older, but no better, or whether or not we will make some real progress. Now, these three questions came to my mind 
as I studied this ancient letter written by a man by the name of Paul. And he was a pastor who was writing to a younger protege pastor whose name was Timothy. And, and as I read this section, which I've heard countless times prior, I had never thought of some of these questions just until this time where they really came up. I thought, wow, now those questions are big, big deals to answer. Now, throughout the whole letter, I want to set this up a little bit. Paul, Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, he, he's been encouraging Timothy, hey, you need to teach the right things to your people. There's a lot of other ideas out there. You need to teach these right things. And then you need to kind of structure your church in the right way so that it's healthy and it's growing and there's accountability and all of those kinds of things. And then when he gets to chapter four, which is where we're going to be today, he gives Timothy this warning and he says, listen, there are some people in your church and they're going to fall away. They're going to fade out, if you will, on faith. They, they seem to be believing the right things right now, but they are going to, the old-timey Greek word, if you transliterate it to English, is apostatize. They're, they're going to turn away from their faith and start pursuing something different. Now, we often talk about deconstruction, where somebody starts asking all these hard questions about their faith, and sometimes that deconstruction can lead to deconversion, where a person who seemed to be walking with Jesus starts to ask all these questions and eventually their faith becomes undermined to the point where they simply fade out on it altogether and they go a different direction. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, Timothy, this is going to happen. There are going to be people who turn away from their faith and completely leave the church. Now, what does he point to in those first few verses as being the thing that leads them to that? Well, he doesn't say some massive new piece of scientific research is coming out. And when that happens, it's going to shake everybody's faith. No, that, that doesn't seem to be the thing. He doesn't say um, there's some new God who comes on the scene and a brand new religion. And, no, he doesn't, he doesn't really say that that's going to happen. He doesn't say there will be so much social and political upheaval that uh, people will no longer be able to come to church. No, he doesn't point to that either. What he says is that over time, some folks will start to make decisions, little tiny decisions, and start to listen to lies, which seem like little lies, that they don't, may not even recognize as being spiritual in nature, but that it's going to kind of undermine them. And it, it, it's as if they're listening to demons, is what he says, which to our ears sounds like pretty extreme, but he's saying... It's like there's whispers and noise everywhere, and they just slowly, subtly start to shift, maybe even changing some habits, and, and soon they're walking in a brand new direction. And so he begins to give them, give Timothy specifically, some really practical advice to help those people in the church who are trying, trying to hang on to their faith to stay true. And this is what he says to the young pastor. He says this in 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. So that you all may see, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, there's a ton here, and I've heard this preached a bunch of different ways. But at the start of our series, I wanted to ask these three questions that have been challenging me, these three questions, which I think the answer to these questions will in many ways determine our capacity for change. Just these three questions. Question number one is, can I be honest? Can I be honest? Now he says, Paul says to Timothy, hey, do you want to be a good pastor? Then do this. And then what he says right after that is what, is what kind of went, oh, can I be honest about where I am? What he says is, train yourself. Train yourself. The Greek word uh, uh, gymnazo here sounds like gymnasium, right? This means to train with one's full effort, with complete physical, emotional force, like an intense workout program at the gym. And when I read this, I was struck by whether or not I am actually training with full effort for godliness or not. Like, do I have an accurate assessment of where I am in terms of my practices and whether or not they are kind of the striving in this toil that he talks about? Recently, a friend and I were, um, we were commiserating and we were complaining about our dads. My, my dad passed away last year and, and his is still alive, but both of them have had or had uh, health problems for years and years and years. Now, some of those health problems were nothing that those men could have prevented or, or what, I mean, they're just things that have happened uh, to those guys. But some of the health things that have arisen in their lives were things that we were feeling, at least during that breakfast, and maybe we weren't being totally fair, but we were thinking, man, if our dads had just, in their 40s, let's say, taken their health seriously, if they had just gone to the doctor more regularly and took their diet seriously and got on a workout program, how different things would be now. And again, maybe that's not totally fair to think, but that's kind of what we were saying. And as we were sort of talking and crabbing about our dads, all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks, which is this. I'm in my 40s, and I don't actually know that I have an accurate assessment of where my health is. And so I looked across the table and I said, when's the last time you went to the doctor? And he said, it's been a long time. He said, how about you? I said, it's been a long time. And, and we both said, you know, we probably shouldn't blame them for assuming everything was fine when we are doing the same thing. We need to go get physicals probably just to get an honest assessment of where things stand. Listen, if you're going to make any progress in life, if you're going to change in any arena, it is important to start with an honest assessment of where you are. Man, I want to be in a different place financially. Well, where are you right now? 
financially. I want to be in a different place physically. I want, I want to be in a different place relationally. Well, where are you right now? Can you be honest? Where are you faith-wise? Can you be honest about that? I mean, if there were an independent panel, you know, lab coats, safety glasses, I don't know why, and clipboards, and they were to watch your day and your week, a typical one, I mean, and, and, and they were to kind of take notes and, and assess, would they say, now there is somebody who is training for godliness. That is a person with eternity in mind. They've organized their lives that way. Can we be honest? I mean, step on the scale, if you will, and don't tell me that the scale is broken. Just tell me what you see there. Do you have some good habits that have been replaced by bad? Has distraction become your default setting? Are you finding yourself drifting someplace? See, what's hard for us to realize is that we are being shaped every single day in millions of little ways, like a little drop of water that hits a rock over and over in the same place and starts to like create a dent there. That's happening to us in every conversation, in every Instagram reel, in every moment of our day through our habits. So be honest. What does it look like? Are you training for godliness or not? I was speaking recently to a friend who's a pastor of one of the largest churches in the entire country. It's massive. In fact, when I talk to him about his church, it's so big, I'm like, I, I can't even like compare that to, to what we're doing here. But I mean, I'm learning great things. And he said, our church at all the different locations, we have found as a staff team that we need to be intense with helping people really be honest about where things stand. Because he said, I have all these staff members and, and they all wanna do the right thing and be great staff members. And he said, but there's some of them that are feeling ineffective and they're feeling overwhelmed and they're just feeling like, this is not how I wanted life to be. I want to be better. And he said, one of the things that I have to do with them all the time is I have to say, are you winning your calendar? Like, let's be honest about how you're spending your time. How distracted are you? What are your daily habits like? And he said, as an organization, they have been ruthless on this because they've recognized that so much of what's happening in people's hearts and minds and lives are things that they're not even aware are going on and they're just, it's causing them to get pulled in a direction. And he said, I have to help them be honest so that they can see, oh, if I'm going to change, I at least need to be assessing what I'm currently doing. So ask yourself the question, can you be honest? Are you... In the words of Paul, training for godliness, toiling and striving. That's the first question, which is really important to ask ourselves and to answer. And this first question, if we're honest, does bring quite a bit of conviction because all of us probably see arenas where we're failing, which is why we have more than just one question. So question number two. Question number two is this. Where have I set my hope. As we ask this first question, if we're honest with ourselves and we're like, oh, I'm not there, you know, I I need to change in all these different arenas or whatever. Some of us, that is like completely catastrophic to think about and depressing because we have set our hope on ourselves. And we think that if we can just read another self-improvement book 
or just summon up a new skill or create a little bit more discipline, then maybe we can change and everything will be better and we'll live this good, meaningful life. And you know, maybe if there's a God out there or whatever, he'll accept us because we're trying really hard. Some of us have placed our hope on ourselves. And while some of you are, are doing a great job in many arenas of your life, you, you are in fact the expert who seems to be kind of cutting through the trees and you know going off the ramps or whatever. While some of us are doing that and you've got money in the bank and some healthy relationships and a bunch of degrees or whatever, the, the truth is you are still on a ski slope and eventually there will be a bottom to that hill and the ski lifts will close. And the question is, what are you going to do then? You see, the story of Jesus, when he said to his disciples, follow me, he was not simply trying to help them improve their lives, learn a couple of techniques that would sort of shift everything for them. No, no, he, he was telling them, listen, you need to die to your old self and place your complete trust in me. If you are going to have real hope, hope that can carry you to a new future, to change your life from the inside out, you need to place your hope and your trust in me and become a child of God. And eventually his followers, they got it. Eventually some of us have started to understand, oh, it's about, it's about grace. It's about receiving what Jesus is offering. It's not about me trying to shift some things so that I can claim my own righteousness and goodness. No, it's that I've been offered and credited Jesus' righteousness and his goodness. Have you set your hope on Jesus or are you just looking for ways to improve your life? Now, if you are studying the Bible or listening to this because you're looking for some life hacks, you're going to find some. The Bible has all kinds of things to say that will, in fact, improve your life in some ways. If you try to leave Jesus out and just do some of these biblical principles, it will, in some senses, work. But, but, ultimately, you're ignoring the greater story, which is that apart from Jesus, we can never change enough to be acceptable to God. So where have you set your hope? Sometimes, we read texts like today's and we are actually honest with ourselves and we hear about, oh, we need to train for godliness and toil and strive. And there's some of us who have come to a place where we've, we, we've set our hope on Jesus. We say, oh yeah, yeah, he saves us. And we assume, oh, it's all about grace to get saved. But then after we get saved, we think, well, now it's all about me trying to look good in front of God. Yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, he's forgiven me. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, rose again. Okay, I'm in. But now it's all on me to try to make myself look better. That, that's not how this works. Even in this text, did you see it? When Paul says, train in godliness, toil and strive, notice what he says in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. He said, we do everything that we do, we train, we toil, we strive from a place of confidence in the living, saving God. If you're a person who has placed your faith in Jesus, then spiritual practices, habits of grace, are not intended to make you look more lovely in the eyes of God. 
if we have placed our faith in Jesus, then he already sees us as righteous and beloved as his precious children. So these habits of grace are not in order to put our goodness before God's eyes. They are habits that help put the goodness of God before our eyes. They're habits that help us see how good he is and that we can have real hope in him. We set our hope on Jesus. And the habits help us see him more clearly and grow in understanding and awareness of him. There's this amazingly relatable text in Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul, in a letter to a different church, is talking about the fact that he, he has taken a good hard look at his life and when he's honest about where he is, he's like, man, there's all these things I want to do and then I don't do them, these things I don't want to do and then I do them. And he kind of goes through this whole thing. It, it's amazing. Here's part of it. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And do you know how he answers that question? He says, who will deliver me? I, I can't change. I have these bad habits. It's just, he says, you know what will change me? A book about habits, a TED talk, um, you know, some more self-discipline. No, no. He says, wretched man, who will change me? And then he says this in the very next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. He says, I'm honest. I know that I'm lacking. I have these terrible habits, these things I try and then I don't and all this. But thanks be to God, my identity, my hope is in him. In my study, I found this fascinating book that's wildly popular. You probably already knew about it since it sold like 10 million copies or some crazy thing. It's called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And it's not a Christian book. Uh, I, I don't know if James Clear is a Christian or not. I have no idea. It's a book designed to help people change, specifically to help them change their habits at kind of these small levels that make huge impacts on our lives. And I was reading a, a blog that he wrote, which is a section of this book, about kind of our internal identity. And I, I found this fascinating. Check out this graphic right here. Now, again, he's not talking about Jesus here, as far as I can tell. But what he says is that if a person really wants to change the way that they ought to change or the, way, the best way to change is to change their identity at the core of who they are. This is what he says. The reason why it's so hard to stick to a new habit is that we often try to achieve a performance or appearance-based goal without changing our identity. Most of the time we try to achieve results before proving to ourselves that we have the identity of the type of person who we want to become. It should be the other way around. So he says, hey, are you a person that doesn't miss a workout? That's an identity. Or are you somebody who's just trying to lose some weight? That's a goal. He said, start with the core of who you are, and then those other things will happen as opposed to the other way around. Now listen, again, I don't know if he's somebody who's a person of faith, 
But this is the gospel. If you actually want to change, it must start with a change in who you are, with where your hope is set. And if it's set on Jesus, if he's the one making you new, then our actions or our habits will flow out of that reality. So question number one, can I be honest about where I am? Question number two, where have I placed my hope? These two questions will determine our capacity for change. And then there's one more question that goes with this, which is question number three, question three. And the question is this, will I start here? Will I start here? Paul encourages Timothy to train, to strive, to toil, but he doesn't want Tim to get it twisted. He said, hey, your hope for change in you and in the church you're trying to help raise up must be firmly set on the person and work of Jesus. And then Paul started giving him a whole bunch of directives like, hey, you need to command and teach and set an example and read scripture and use your gifts and practice and all these things. And I had always looked at the what of those directives and I had sort of missed the where of those directives. Where does Paul expect Timothy to get to work and his training for godliness? Did you notice? Look at each of those things. Where do those things take place? Um, at church. At church. Listen. Command and teach. Where? Well, at the church. Set an example. Where? In front of the church. Publicly read God's word. Where? In the market? Well, maybe. But he's talking about the church. Let them see your progress. Who? The, the church. He doesn't say train in godliness in private and nobody else will see he says, no, no, this ought to start here among the people of God at the church. The church is where many of our habits of grace are taught, encouraged, equipped, refined, and practiced. If there was one habit, if you ignored the rest of this series, if there was one habit that I thought would make a huge difference in your year, after you ask these questions, it would be this, commit to being physically present with the church. Commit to being among God's people, like actually with them. Unless you're physically unable, make it a habit to be every Sunday with the people of God at the church. Now, I'm going to be honest with you about a couple of things. Number one, uh, I'm so glad that we have this online thing because it allows people who are physically unable to still kind of join in some way. It allows our missionary partners around the world to stay connected with us. I mean, it allows for families that are sick. It allows for a lot of things. So, so in that way, I am very thankful that we have this online thing. The other thing I need to be honest about is that uh, we have space problems. Uh, I mean, we, we, we're already adding on and we need another $2 million to expand the sanctuary to accommodate some of the growth we've already seen and a whole bunch more that seems to be headed our way. And so it actually, if everybody who said GBC is my church actually showed up physically on location, there might be some challenges that arose as a result. And so I should probably just say, stay at home because it works out fine for our seating and our parking. I probably should say, stay at home, because, you know, maybe you're sick, I don't know. And yet, 
I actually can't do that because I think it's so, so, so critically important to show up physically in person and be around other Christians in worship in your church on a Sunday. There is a text in Hebrews 10 where the writer is speaking and encouraging some Jesus followers and they live in an area of intense persecution where it actually becomes dangerous to gather together in, in worship. Now, as he's talking to them and encouraging them, I, I think we would be tempted to say, if we were to give them encouragement, listen, um, pursue your faith, train in godliness at home with your family. Like, do whatever you need to do there. Just don't get together with a large group of people because that might cost you your life and it's not worth it. So just be careful, stay at home, don't draw any attention to yourself, be kind of quiet about it, and then you'll be better off. That's what I think we would be tempted to say. But to this church in an area where there's real persecution happening and it's dangerous, this is what he says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He said, listen, I know it's easier and safer to stay home, but some have gotten out of the habit of gathering together regularly with their people. Don't do it, he says. It's too important. You, you, you must keep getting together. Something happens when you are making a habit of being with other people. Do you know what happens to me when I go to a, a fitness facility as opposed to working out at home? I work out harder. And not because I have a trainer, not even because I know anybody else who's at the gym. I might be zoned out in a podcast by myself with a routine that I made up through all my Google searching, right? But just being around other people, I start to work harder. There's just something that happens when I'm in their presence. I watch a comedy at home by myself. I'm not laughing out loud. I watch it in a theater full of people, and I do. I eat alone in the car. It doesn't taste very good. I eat at a table with my family, and it's a totally different situation. Can you imagine? a teenager walking down and there was a family dinner happening and they said, I'm gonna take my meal to go. And the mother looked at him like, what? Yeah, listen, mom, um, I can eat the same food in my room. It's more comfortable to sit on my bed than to sit at this table. And besides, if I'm here, I might get in a fight with one of my siblings. So why don't you just um, be cool with it? I'm just gonna put the stuff, I'm just gonna get the food and I'm gonna go up there. And even if I skip, it's not like I'm gonna starve if I miss this meal. So I know family dinner's here, but I'm gonna, how would that go over in that house? And why every one of us hears that example and we think, that punk, they should probably be at the table with their family, it would be better for them. It'd be better for the whole family if they were all gathered together in one place to eat. Why is church different? Listen, I, I know that this gathering thing consistently week after week is a challenge and it's hard. It's also really important. It is really, 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 really important. And if you're like, I'm not sure it's important to me, it is. You know who else it's important to? Me. You know who else it's important to? My kids. You're like, well, how could it be? Listen, when, I, when my kids are in, in a church and they see other people around 
and, and they go, wow, there's, uh, there's other people in this city, in this area that are committed to Jesus. And there's a football player over there, and there's a professor over there, and there's a carpenter over there, and there's a mom and a grandma. And I, that matters to them as they see it's an encouragement to them and even to us ourselves that our presence is a present. So I'm asking you to take an honest assessment of your habit to set your hope fully on Jesus and to start here. Prioritize the awkward, uncomfortable, sometimes really squished reality of a weekly meeting in a local church. It makes a big difference. I've stolen this line from Larry, uh, Pastor Larry Osborne before, but he said, we think we transmit to our kids our values through our words, but we actually transmit far more through our habits, through what we make our priority. He said, we, we, we think, oh, as long as I say the right thing, then it doesn't matter if I actually do the right thing, but we transmit way more of what we're about by what we actually make our habits and our priorities. And so I'm always asking myself, do my kids think that I value athletics more or their spiritual development? Their education or their spiritual development? Where, what do my kids think based on how I am living and by what my habits are? There's actually incredible research out there about adults who attend church and whether or not their parents, specifically their fathers, were consistent in their habit of church attendance. So start here. Do you actually want to change? Do you want to be any different or any better this year than last? Well, if so, it's time to ask three really important questions, which will, in many ways, determine your capacity for whether or not you will change. And the first question is, can I be honest about where I am? And the second question is, where have I set my hope, really? And the third question is, will I start here? Let's pray. Father, I know that this is some touchy uh, arenas that, I, that, that we're hitting on. And I also know that it's really easy to miss the point of what Jesus has done in the identity part. So let's not lose that and kind of just grab onto life hacks. Okay. Father, do a mighty work in us. We do not know what will happen this year, but we do have some control of how we structure some habits this year. And so whether or not everything goes swimmingly in the economy and the political scene and the weather, God, would you allow us to be intentional, to train for godliness, to toil and strive from a place of real hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.